Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You can find it on page 9 of the bulletin or in your copy of the Scripture. Listen to this. This is God's very word to you. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Word of God for the people of God. If you were to walk up to a home, let's say for some reason you needed to go around to the, the side, the family has said to you, yeah, yeah, just come in the fence and, and we'll be around back. And you see a beware of dog sign. What, what do you normally do? <laughs> you, you call them, yes, yes. Or, or you stop and you begin to look for them. And no matter how friendly that dog may look on the other side of that fence, when you see them, if you are going to open that fence and you don't have any treats in your pocket, what what you do, you're going to exercise caution because you understand that that dog is territorial. That dog is possessive. He is going to, well, he's going to hurt you if you're not careful. You have to be careful for them. You have to be extra cautious. And if someone knows their dog is of particular danger, what do they do? They take extra precautions than just a simple sign. They may put away into a kennel or, or something like that for the duration of your, of your time there. Um, if, however, it's not just you, it's you and your child. And you enter into that fence and that dog, no matter how happy it may look, what do you do with your child? You warn them and you warn them sternly, right? Stay away from that dog. Don't go near that dog. You keep away. The more, the more serious the matter. Now, if it's a chihuahua, you, you may let them get away with a little bit. But if it's something larger, you're going to warn them with a little more seriousness. Because the more grave the danger that you perceive to them, the more sternly you're going to warn them, right? That's what Paul's doing here. He perceives a grave danger. As he comes to our text, he's warning us of something that is very dangerous. So, many, so much so that he says it three times. Our text says, look out for, I like to, to say beware. It sort of, sort of makes it more... Pointed, And so he says it three times, beware, beware, beware. And he is warning us with such, well, with such fervor because this is life or death. This isn't something as piddly as a dog attacking you. This is your soul. 
He's wanting you to take note because this doesn't just have ramifications for here on this earth. It doesn't just have something to do with you in this life only. You, you lose a finger to a dog, that's okay, you can get by with it. You lose your soul, well, there's a greater danger. And He is warning us in a in a way that you can imagine him standing up and screaming across the yard from the other side of the other fence, telling you not to get near this danger. That's what he's doing. You, you know where we are in our text. He has he built up this case that we are those who are immersed into the body of Christ. We are brought in uh, through our baptism and we, we are immersed into the ways and the language of Christ. And He is now warning them. He's told them, look, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you and I'm sending Timothy to you. But now He's warning them of those who haven't been sent. Those who take to themselves the role of teacher, those who have not been approved, those who are just coming in order to try and gain a hearing. And he's saying you are in grave danger. Do not accept what they bring. It's a danger to you. So he is passionately warning them because he loves them like a father. Just like a father seeing a child run into the road and seeing down the road a car coming, knowing that danger, well, you cast off restraint. There's no such thing as self-dignified way of rescuing someone at that point. He's casting off restraint in order, in order to protect them. He sees the danger coming. And so because their souls are at stake, this is, the reality is the gospel is a life and death matter. And that's what he's wanting them to see. And so, from this text, we see that the truth and the nature of the gospel causes us to rejoice in Christ and to take heed to our doctrine. We're going to see that in three points. We're going to see it in his earnest exhortation. We're going to see it in his urgent admonition. And then lastly, we're going to see it in his polarizing declaration. Polarizing declaration. So an earnest exhortation, an urgent admonition, and a polarizing declaration. It doesn't start out, right? He doesn't start out with the, this warning as he transitions. He actually, he actually says, he doesn't say finally. He's not, he's not like a long-winded pastor who just doesn't know when to wrap it up. He's doing, he's doing what I'm going to start doing, so I don't use the word finally. He actually says, to the remaining... He's now turning and looking at other things. And so, to the remaining, he doesn't say finally, to the remaining, my brothers, the things that you need to know that I haven't already addressed. He's addressed the beauty and the glory of Christ. He's addressed us coming alongside of one another, being united in Christ and having the same mind. And now these are things that he's adding to that, to the remaining things. And so he writes them and he gives them, first of all, this command Rejoice in the Lord. It's a command to all of us and to all of them, regardless of their circumstances. Finally, rejoice. 
This is something that we've said is a sub-theme. There are those who make it the full theme of Philippians, having joy. But that's, that's not really what he's after. He's after unity as a body in Christ. And out of that unity, joy flows. And now, though, he's giving us this command, rejoice in the Lord. Paul, you will remember, is writing this from where? Yeah, from prison. He's writing from prison. And yet he is saying to those who are free, who are at home, at leisure, who, who, who don't have the same situation around them, rejoice in the Lord. It's a, it's a resounding theme. And it's not simply a matter of grin and bear it. Put on a happy face. Smile. Don't let them see you're down. Keep sweet. That's not what he's after. He's after a true rejoicing. He's brought the word up before. We've addressed it multiple times. It's usually a transition place in chapter 1 and verse 18, verse 19, chapter 2 and verse 2, verse 17, then verses 28 and 29. But if you will go back this afternoon, look at every place that he's talked about rejoice or rejoicing or joy. You will find that every time that he's ever brought it up, well, most every time, He's talked about it in the face of adverse circumstances. He's never said it just just out of, well, everything's going to be great and grand. It's always been with this subtext under it that things aren't going to be great and grand. I'm in prison, but we can have joy. I'm rejoicing. You ought to rejoice because joy has little to do with ordinary times of happiness and occasions of that, but with having the mind of Christ. And so he's telling them to rejoice before he gets to the false teachers who don't have the mind of Christ. And so their way is not the way of joy, it's the way of misery. You get wrapped up in their teaching and you will live a life of misery And you will live a life of this self-defeating circle because you will never measure up. And they're telling you to measure up. And so he's setting it out before he even gets there that he can deal with those false teachers before before he gets to them. And so he tells them to rejoice. It's understanding who God is and what He's done. And so he says rejoice. And what's the nature of our rejoicing? In the Lord. Not rejoicing for rejoicing's sake, but rejoice in the Lord. He's setting us up, getting us ready for what He's about to say. Because the false teachers would have them rejoice in their own accomplishments, rejoice in their flesh, rejoice in anything other than Christ. He's saying to them, rejoice in the Lord. Your own self, not in your own wisdom, not in your own righteousness. Rejoice in what Christ has done. Why? Because of their union with Christ. They've been brought into this relationship with Him, and that if they have Christ, they have everything. And they can rejoice even if they're in prison like Paul, even if they're near death. Like Epaphroditus, they can have this outward facing love, this Well, this rejoicing that comes from somewhere other than strumming it up and just smiling. Rejoice in the Lord. It's what He's calling them to do. And then He tells us the extent of our rejoicing. Are you ready for it? Children, put this on. Your parents have told you this. Always. 
Always. When do you have permission to grumble and to complain? Rejoice in the Lord always. I don't think it needs further comment. And so he gives them this this exhortation. Notice, Notice his heart. He's got this service for the good of others. Rejoice in the Lord always. To write the same things to you, obviously he's written them before, he's talked to them about this before. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Why is it no trouble? How much trouble would it be for you to tell others, well, the truth of the gospel? None. None. If your children don't understand it, do you smack your lips and roll your eyes and say, how many times must I tell you about Jesus before you grasp it? No. With delight, you sit down with Him again and you say, listen, let's talk about this until you get it. So it is with others. He's saying to them, listen, I want to make sure you have this. It's no trouble for me because the gospel is that important. You need to get it. You need to understand. And we need to see the Lord work in it. It's no trouble. The gospel is essential to life. It's a matter of life or death. But why the same things? Too many times we get in our understanding, we think that you know, we really need to grow out away from the milk of the Word. We need to get away from the milk and really get a hold of the meat. But what is the meat of the Gospel? Is it any, is it any change from Christ and Him crucified? No. No, 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 that's not it. Because the Christian life is not growing out of the truths of the faith, but into them. He's repeating it again, the same things, that they might grow into them. It's like going it's like going to a cave, one of those that has that small entrance, and you, and you squeeze inside of it, and then you get inside, and you think it's going to be small, but it, it opens up. It's deeper, richer, wider, longer than you could have ever imagined. That's the gospel, and you don't get it until you understand that it's not right here, but it's deep, rich, and wide. The same cave, greater expanse. And so he's delivering to them again the in order that they might understand and grow into it. That's why we have the form that we have for our worship. Every week, have you noticed the pattern? There's a pattern to it. We are called by God to worship. We respond in song because God has invited us in. Then we recognize that we've entered into the presence of God and we know that we are not of clean hands and a pure heart. And so we come to Him and we confess our sins and we ask Him for mercy. He gives it to us and we respond to that by confessing that He is Lord. And we respond to that then. That's what we're doing we're entering into that work. We are, we are hearing it again and again and again that we might, well, grow into the grace of God, into the salvation that He's given, that we might grow into the understanding that He has in His Word. And so it's like, it's like those, 
those children in the last battle, when they go, if you've not read it, this will make no sense to you, so go read it. Um, they go into this, this little stable, but on the other side is an entire world. And it's, it's the world represented by heaven and and what it sets before them. And as they enter into it, there's one who's always calling to them further up and further in. And so he's writing to them the same things because you don't grow out of the truths of the gospel to something else. You don't advance into something else. You grow into it. Always further up and further in. And so he gives them this exhortation because he wants for them to understand but they don't need some innovation. They just need Jesus. Innovation is always problematic. You know who was innovative? Muhammad. You know who was innovated? Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know who was innovative? Joseph Smith. No, you don't need innovation. You need the gospel and to grow into it. And so he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. Know what He's done. Understand who He is. And now he gets to this admonition. Three times. Beware. 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 Do you think he's being emphatic? He's building his case here. This is serious. It's a, it's a matter of life and death. If the gospel is what we say it is, Christ, Him, on our behalf, living a perfect life, dying for us on the cross, being buried, being raised, being ascended to the Father and returning, if all of that is what we say it is, then He must be emphatic. Does anyone who would pervert that is damning souls. And so three times, he's emphatic. He says, beware. Beware, doesn't he? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. He's not just calling names. He's not doing like school children. Well, oh yeah? You're that. No, he's not, he's not just calling names. He's not being derogatory. Remember, this is the same Paul who said, if, if I could, I would be accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I would go to hell that they wouldn't. He's also the same Paul who wrote, if anyone comes to you with anything other than the gospel which we preach, even if it's me or an angel of light, let them be accursed. That's how serious the gospel is. And so three times... Three times he carefully chooses his words because he's building an intense sense of irony. He's attacking them. And so he's turning the tables on those Judaizers that we dealt with in Galatians. And so what does he do? He calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. Now if you're a dog person, don't take offense of this. He's using it religiously. He's not using it talking about your animals. He's talking about them in a religious connotation. Remember, the Jews called Gentiles dogs. That's why it wasn't a shock when Jesus said to the woman, it's not appropriate to take uh, the scraps and give them to the dogs, take them from the children. She didn't take offense. She understood because dogs were those things that were covenantally unclean. It meant they were outside 
of the covenant community. They, they were not pets like we have them. They were filthy scavengers that, you know, you saw in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they were just out getting what they could get, and they would even come lick his wounds. They were not, they were not the pets like we have. And what's Paul saying then in this warning? Look out! For the dogs, these Judaizers are filthy scavengers who are coming in, going to eat what they can eat, devour what they can devour. They were saying that the Gentiles, these Philippians, were dogs if they weren't circumcised. And Paul's turning it around. No, the dogs are those who don't know Christ, who would turn you to anything other than to Christ. He's saying they are the ones outside of the covenant community. And then he calls them evil workers. Who are the evil workers? They're not blatantly non-Christian. They're the workers within the churches that come up, that rise up and against what's going on there. They, They profess to be Christians. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're corrupt. They seek to work their corruption in the church. They're not satisfied to keep their thoughts to themselves. They're resting in the filthy rags of their works. And they're trying to get others to do the same. If you want to be a real Christian, you must be circumcised. We saw that in Galatians. But true good works are only by believers to the glory and praise of of Christ, but they look like us. They even use some of our words. They don't hold up a sign that says, I'm a false teacher. And so Paul is saying, be careful. Beware, be on the lookout. These are those who are outside of the covenant and they're going to come in and they are going to do their work among you. They're going to do it in in more or less loud ways. If they come in and they begin to teach, you'll pick up on it, but that's not how they do. They, they draw people off, get them to the side and say, well, why do you think about this? Beware, he says. And he calls them the mutilation. This is pretty scathing. We, we, have, a nice, we have a nice translation that says who mutilate the flesh, but they are the mutilation in other words, the very thing that they were resting in as their, their source of pride, Paul takes it and interprets it as the surest sign that they have no share with God's people. They were resting in that which was outward and of the flesh, but that which is of the flesh is not of the Spirit. So their circumcision accounted for nothing because it wasn't of the heart. And so Paul says, beware of those who would come in and mutilate the flesh. Now for us, we don't have the circumcision party in that way, but we do have those who would have us attempt to rest in our works, in our own righteousness, the things that we would do by our hands. And Paul is saying, no, no, cast them off. Let them be a curse. They're a threat because they demand added obedience that's not real obedience. Not obedience out of love. So the Scripture is our authority in all things. And then he gets to this declaration. Verse 3. Verse 3, Paul is at the pinnacle here of his attack. 
They are coming in. They are saying that circumcision is the way to go. That's the only way you could be made right with God is to trust Jesus and to be circumcised. And now Paul is going to utterly decimate that. So that you ought to never have any sort of hope in yourself, rest in your works, but always only in Christ. This is what he says. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confident confidence in the flesh. This isn't, I know you are, what am I? This isn't that sort of grade school comeback. No, no, no. He's saying this is what a real Christian looks like. This is what a real believer is. Those who would rest in anything other than the work of Christ, they're not Christians. You don't have fellowship with them. Your Mormon friends and neighbors who, although they are nice and do interesting things, they're not Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses who go out and dedicate so much time to what they're doing. They are not Christians. They are putting confidence anywhere other than Christ. It's polarizing. It's, it's the truth. And that's what truth does. It divides. And that's what happens here. And so he says, we are the circumcision. Either you are or you aren't. Paul is saying those who are truly in covenant with God are those who have these marks. This is the fullness of Christianity in contrast to those false teachers who are on their way. What are these marks? Well, one, worshiping by the Spirit. Isn't that what he says? For we are the circumcision. We are the ones who have had our hearts changed. The the foreskins of our heart have been removed. Who worship by the Spirit of God. We're united to Jesus by faith, not by a cutting away of the flesh. It's by the trimming of the Spirit of God on our hearts to remove the hearts of stone and give to us a heart of flesh. That is how that is how we worship. And so it's about the heart. That's how we serve God. Because serving Christ by the power of the Spirit is how we function. It's by the necessity of the Spirit. No Spirit, no worship. No Spirit, no salvation. No Spirit... No union to Christ. It's just outward shells and dead forms. They only come by the work of the Spirit in us. And so He's prompting us to worship and to serve God by the Word, glorying in Christ. Isn't that what He says? Those who are unbelievers don't glory in Christ. They glory in Christ plus. I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and I have been circumcised. That makes me really real. I am a Christian, I have believed in Jesus, and I... No, 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 no. If you ever stand before God and you say, I believed in Jesus and I, you've missed the whole thing. When you're called to account, 
All your boast, all your glory is to be in Christ. What He has done, who He is. And so Paul is saying to us, not all boasting is bad. Our boast is to be in Christ. Who's Jesus to you? Who is He? Do you you know who He is? Do you understand what He's done? Have Have you laid hold of Him? And put all your weight, the weight of all your soul, the hope of all your forgiveness on Him. Then you'll glory in Him. Then you'll boast in Him. And so He's calling us to that. And then He says this, putting no confidence in the flesh. What does that look like? Well, for them it looked like outward exercises. I've been circumcised. I go to the synagogue. I I have sacrificed. I've done these things. They're putting confidence in that, but, but that's not where we rest. It flows right out of and naturally out of no confidence in the flesh flows out of boasting in Christ. So how do you not put confidence in the flesh? You boast in Jesus. You rest in Him. You look to Him. He is all of your hope. He is that solid rock upon which you build. You don't build on sand. It will wash away. You rest in Him. You put no confidence in the flesh. And here is where by the Spirit comes in. Because it's not merely a matter of knowing the right answers. Your walk with Christ, your understanding of Him, isn't just knowing right answers. It's coming to Him. It's having hope in Him. He is alive. You go to Him in prayer. You run to Him. You cast all of your weight on Him. And you're united to Him by the Spirit. Listen, if Christ went through all that He went through, as we've already seen in verses 5-11, through 11, two, what can you do to add to that? Nothing. You cling to Jesus. You have all your hope in Him. All of your salvations in Him. All of your walk is in Him. All of your glorying is in Him. He's the one who said it's finished. And so Paul's warning them of danger, and I warn you of danger. Do not rest in anything other than Christ. You you may have been a church member all of your life. It doesn't make you a Christian. You, You may have read through the Bible every year for the last 25 years. It doesn't make you a Christian. You may not have committed that sin that you know that person over there has committed. You've done pretty well. You've kept your nose clean. No one can lay anything to your charge that doesn't make you a Christian. And next week, Paul's going to show us that. God forbid that I should boast in anything other than Jesus Christ. Hear the warning in that. And throw yourself upon Jesus. 
Because that's what this community is. We draw near as those who have all of our hope in Christ. Nowhere else. And the reason that we are united to each other is because we know every one of us who is here calling upon Jesus, we know that that's their hope, and that's my hope, and that's your hope. And that spurs us along together and helps us, well, to beware. To beware of evil workers, to beware of dogs, beware of mutilation, whatever shape and form they take. We encourage one another to look to Jesus because Christians are those who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what the supper is going to show us here in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, give to us all of our hope in Christ. Give to us all of our glory in Christ. Give to us all that we need in Christ. Make Him our own. Let us beware of the subtle ways that Satan tempts us to trust in anything other than Jesus. And let us cast ourselves upon Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.